If you've got a Bible and want to follow along, I'm going to be in John 15 and in John 16. Hopefully I can remember how to do this. It's been a while since I've been up here preaching. I just want to say thank you to Scott. And thank you to Andrew for faithfully laboring and dividing the word, brothers. It's a blessing. Um, John 15, 12 through 16, 3 is our text this morning, and we're midway through Jesus's farewell discourse. And for those of you who may be kind of just dropping in, the farewell discourse is Jesus's kind of final parting words to prepare his people that he's been investing in, that he has been pouring into for the last three years. And he's just pouring out his heart to them before he departs. And two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus comforts them as he is about to depart with this promise of a gift upon his departure, the gift of the Holy Spirit that he will send from the Father once he leaves. And then last week, we heard what this gift means for us. It means that though Jesus is going away in body, that we can still abide in and with Christ, him with us and us in him through this gift of the Holy Spirit. But as we pick up in verse 12 this morning, Jesus now explains more specifically what these abiding people can expect when he leaves. So if you would, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we, we just ask for your help this morning. We pray that the Spirit would be at work in the hearts and minds of your people, knowing that, Lord, what we're about to do together is not to hear us man talk. We're, we're not even trying to grow our understanding and our knowledge. We're trying to see Jesus. We're trying to understand how we would respond to him and see him for all that he is worth. And we know that, Lord, you must supernaturally bless the preaching of your word for your people to receive it as it's intended to be received. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that you would take this word and that you would glorify Christ and edify his people. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> For those of you who don't know, me and Pastor Andrew are, are teaching a parenting class during our, our Grow class. And so I've been thinking a lot about parenting over the last few weeks. And one lesson I've learned as a parent that I wanted to share with you this morning is the importance of setting a clear expectation for your children, right? Parents, can I get an amen? amen. Set those expectations clearly. And we saw this hold true on a recent trip down to CM's family. So most of you know, about two weeks ago, we traveled down to North Mississippi, which for those of you who are counting, that's five kids, one dog on an 11 and a half hour trip in a minivan. So let's just go ahead and say it was one of those trips that we were thankful to be able to go on because you guys allowed us to be able to go and help care for Emily's sick father and a mother who's been caring for him. But we were also very thankful when it was over. <laughs> and the reality is that most of the time when we do this trip, it's always hard when we're going kind of on the road and everybody's asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But it's all worth it when they get to Mo and Pop's house. Mo and Pop live out in kind of about 45 minutes outside of Starkville in the country. And so it's like a different world. They get to hang out with Mo and Pop. They get their cousins. They get to spend a lot of time outside. Um, the boys get to pee outdoors, which they love. Um, it's just this wonderful experience for our children. 
Now, the reality, though, that this time is that we wanted to, we knew it was going to be a little different because though Mo and Pop are usually there to greet us when we go, they weren't going to be able to be there because they were both in the hospital. And we knew that we were going and the cousins that they normally kind of surround and get to see the first day were dealing with the flu and the stomach bug. And so as we were heading down, we, we, we headed down knowing that this was about to be dramatically different. And so we set to work setting the expectations of our children that it was going to be very different this time around. And we did that in two ways. One, we set our expectation for what we expected of them when we got there, what kind of behavior, what kind of attitude we expected. And we also helped them understand and prepared them by helping to understand, uh, making clear the expectation of what it was going to be like when we got there. It wasn't going to be the same as previous trips. And I bring that up this morning because I think as we look at the passage that I'm going to be preaching on today, 15, 12 through 16, 3, I think Jesus is doing something very similar for his disciples. He's about to leave. And so he wants to prepare them for what they can expect when he departs. And he does that in two ways, both by preparing them, by telling them what he expects of them and the way they are to love one another, but also to prepare them by telling them what they can expect from the world. And though we're 2,000 years removed from when Jesus originally said this, and though he is not saying it, he said it to his 12 in the upper room, I think as this continual discourse makes clear, these words should not be applied to them only, but also to us. And so what they do for us is they help you and I today know how we are to live faithfully to persevere until Jesus returns. Because just as my children needed clear expectations of what to expect and clear expectations of what they, we expected of them, so the people of God today to live faithfully need the same thing. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Our, our sermon only has two parts. And we're going to talk first about what Jesus expects of his people. And then we're going to talk about what Jesus expects for his people. But to begin, in verses 12 through 18, we're going to talk about what Jesus expects. He, Jesus expects you, as his followers, to love like he loves you. To love like he loves you. Now, in the verses leading up to verse 12, which we're about to dive into, the primary analogy has been of this vine and this branch abiding in a vine. It's this word abide that comes up again and again. If you didn't get to hear uh, Pastor uh, Scott's um, message last week, I I just want to encourage you that you need to go back and read 15, 1 through 11, because everything we're about to say is really going to be kind of coming out of that. Because in that section of scripture, Jesus makes the clear point that abiding Christians that are abiding in Jesus are obeying Christians. Abiding Christians are obeying Christians. And which would make sense, right? If we are abiding in Jesus, the perfectly obedient one, then we would want to be like him. We have his sap as Scott used that language, flowing through us, then we're going to be like Jesus, the perfectly obedient one, which means that we are not obeying as an obligation, but it is our joyful response to a Jesus that loves us and has given himself for us, right? And so with 
For these abiding people, Jesus now makes very clear, explicitly, specifically, how he expects that his abiding people will obey. As he continues in verse 12, saying this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You. Is this the first time in John that we've heard him tell you to love one another? No, certainly not. But it would be a real mistake to go, John again? Again? John with a love one another? Why do, we, why do we need to hear this again? First, we need to hear it again because anytime Jesus repeats something, we see something repeated in scripture, what are we, what are we supposed to do? When I repeat something to my kids three times, it's because it's important. When we hear the same words, the same command of Jesus over and over again, it is because it is important. But specifically where it's placed right here, there's a couple of very significant things about this command. First, because I think it gives focus to our beating. So if you look back a few verses, you'll notice that Jesus had made the point that if you love me, you will obey my commandments with S at the end, right? Commandments, plural, because we know that in Scripture there are lots of commands, correct? Right? How many of you are awake? (laughs) Let me hear one time. Are there more than one command in Scripture? Yes. Thank you very much. All right? You're very loud when we're singing, but you go all silent on me when we start to preach, okay? So the point being that there's this command, there's all these commandments that, that we're called to obey as part of abiding in Christ. That's how we love him. We obey his commandments. But here, he seems to refine the list and he said, this is my commandment, singular, that you love one another. It's almost as if, and he doesn't say this explicitly, Jesus is saying that the way you sum up my commands to you and the way that you show your love for me, because he is commanding it so we'd obey in love, is by showing that kind of love for other people. And I I think it's one of those where it's like, I I, want to say more but I don't know if I need to say more and I want to move on, but I don't think it's a good idea because here's the reality. Jesus is saying that the way you love him is to show love for one another. Now, when I says one another, I do think I want to make it clear. Who is he primarily referring to? Who is he talking to? His disciples. So who is primarily in view when he says one another? The disciples. And when I say disciples, if you are new to this church, I mean everyone who calls himself a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus, he is talking that that is supposed to be the focus. Now, is he saying that you should hate everybody else? No, but he is saying that that is intended to be the focus of your love. So first we see this clear focus on showing love for one another. And part of the reason I think he's doing that is because, listen, if you're not loving your own family well, how are you going to love anybody else well? Right? Like, if you can't love your brothers and sisters well, then, like, you can love that person who's distant over there because you don't see him. But this person you're interacting with every day, that's the one that's a challenge. 
And I think it's so interesting that we want to move on past this so quickly. But in 1 Corinthians 13, we get a sense of how central this idea. As Paul will labor, as he's talking to this church that's consumed with divisions because they've got spiritual gifts and loving this and putting this gift. And it's created all these divisions. And he says this, if you speak in the tongue of men and of angels... If you have a faith that can move mountains, if you give your body to be burned, but you have not love, you are nothing. I think, and maybe I'm speaking to my own tribe here, but in some doctrinally sound churches, we minimize the importance of the love of God for one another. That the love that we have from God should primarily manifest itself in love for one another. A horizontal love. And we're going to talk just a minute about what this looks like. But first, I want us also to see that it not only does it kind of focus this love, but it also elevates the expectation of our love. He says that we are to love one another as I have loved you. His love... And how he loves, he's saying, is the standard and expectation for how you are to love one another. But how has the Son loved us? How has Jesus loved you? Verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, And someone lay down his life for his friends. Now this is a verse that ends up on coffee cups. That is, you know, very popular out there in the world today. But don't let its familiarity make you miss the stunning statement. Jesus is calling his followers to lay down their life for one another. Because that is the greatest show of love. And as I said, it's, we'll get into the specifics of what this means. And I don't think in that he's saying that you need literally to lay down your life someone. I mean, if I laid down my life for Mark Stillings, I, could, I don't know how much it would help him, right? But at the same time, I'm supposed to love Mark in such a way that I'd be willing to. Because Mark is my brother in Christ. Y'all, this is a shocking statement. It may sound beautiful, but it is a high standard. And so we need to hear what Jesus says next because it makes it all worth it. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, You are my friends. So he's just said, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he follows it up with, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. And I think this distinction between servants and friends is intended to highlight the beauty of the personal relationship that Jesus has with those that he has purchased by his blood. And I think it's important to see who his friends are. Who does he say his friends are? Those who obey. Now, I think there's two different ways you could read this. You could read this as 
Jesus saying that if you want to be my friend, you need to obey me, which I think would be the incorrect way to read this. Or you can read this, I think, the way he's intending to read it based on everything that John has been saying up to this point, which you can't be good enough, you can't obey enough to be in Jesus' friend circle. What he's saying here is that not our obedience makes us his friend, but that our obedience marks us as his friends. Okay? Our obedience does not make us his friends. Our obedience marks us as his friends. And that's true both then and now. If you want to know how to tell a believer in Jesus Christ, one of Jesus' close friends, it is somebody who is bringing their life into submission to Jesus. Those are his friends. When we hear the commands of Jesus and we intentionally walk in another way, it's not as if we didn't make the cut. It's as if we're showing that by our actions that we are not truly within his friend circle. And I think it's also important to understand what he means by friend. Because we use that word today like really, really casually, right? So like, I know before my Facebook account just inexplicably got like deleted, I had like a thousand friends. I did not know half of those people personally. And so the word friend can mean a casual acquaintance. It can mean somebody that I've interacted with from time to time. But the way Jesus is using it, he's using it as distinct from servant. The idea being that you are not just somebody that does what I say, even though we, are, we owe him that, right? He is the same. He can command us as he will. He is bringing us into his inner circle. He is making us privy to his inner counsels by telling us what he is doing. And in so doing, he is elevating us into a personal, intimate relationship with him. So why do we want to love others sacrificially? Because Jesus has not only died for us to make us his own, he has brought us near to him. It is a way that we can speak about what Jesus has done for us that still seems to make him and we're us an impersonal recipient of his love, but that is not what Jesus is doing. He is bringing us near so that we can have an intimate, personal relationship with him. That he would be an amazing thing, that we would be his friend. And it's easy to think that somehow they did something to earn this privilege. But Jesus makes very clear in the next verse that they did not earn this, but they were chosen for this. In verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, here Jesus makes clear that this privilege was not something that they stumbled into. So his friend group, somebody just ambles in. He's like, whoa, Scott made it in? Wow, man, I didn't see that coming. All right, yeah, thank you. Great, Scott, you're on my inner circle. No, he specifically chose you for that. He called you for that. 
He died so you could be in that inner circle. And then it says he appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. The idea for appointed is that you are commissioned, that you are set apart for a specific purpose. So when he calls friends, he calls them and gives them purpose. And that purpose that he gives them is a purpose that they would bear fruit. And so Jesus after calling them to this high call, this high love, he gives them all of these reasons to want to obey that, to, to desire that, because they have been loved with a perfect love, a sacrificial love, a love that has brought them and made them intimate acquaintances with the Son of God. And why is he saying all these things to, him right, to them right now? Well, verse 17, he hits it again. He says, these things I command you, Again, so that you will love one another. He says it again. In other words, as Jesus is leaving, he makes clear that what he desires and what he expects for his followers is that they would follow his example of sacrificial love for one another. That the Jesus who left 2,000 years ago in his absence expects that the people he left behind would be marked by a sacrificial love for one another. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to also lay down our lives for others. Now, I want to do just for a few moments now is just to get very practical with this. Because one of the hardest things about talking about love is everybody's like, yes, we should love one another. Everybody knows that. Random guy on the street knows that. I did not need to come into this room to know I was supposed to love one another. So now I want to take a moment and just talk about why and how. And the first thing I want to say is I think is clear within context is if you want to know based on 15, 1 through 11, how you are abiding in Christ? The question you need to ask yourself is what kind of fruit am I bearing in sacrificial love for others? How am I abiding? Where is my sacrificial love for others? And if there is little love you have for others, if you have a hard time forgiving anyone, anything, if you're ruled by a spirit of criticalness, if you don't care about anybody, you're just about yourself, and like, I, don't, I come to church for myself, I leave, I go do my thing, I don't care about any other believers, I don't care about anybody else. I think Jesus, and I think the Gospel of John and 1 John would ask the question, is Christ abiding in you? Because if Christ, the Son of God, who loved him and poured himself out for a people, is abiding in you, where is the fruit in your life? And I think there's a few other practical ways that this would play out. The first is that you just need to be very, very careful of a critical spirit when it comes to the church. Or you may call it organized religion. Or you may call it like whatever you want to call it. It's so easy for Christians as they learn more to be like, I know more now and I can really see all the problems with those people. Guess what? Jesus saw them as well. He still died for them. 
I am not saying the church is perfect. I'm not saying this church is perfect. I'm not saying the church in America is perfect. I'm saying it's got lots and lots and lots of flaws. But don't be the accuser of the brethren. Don't be the first one to be able to jump and cast those stones. What I'm saying is that we should have an attitude and an understanding that is very, we see where our sins are. We see ourselves with clarity. We're not like unaware that we've got flaws. And yet at the same time, it is marked by a sacrificial love for these people, which means that we we stop being critical and we roll up our sleeves and we get to work. See, the moment our critical spirit dominates, we start holding everybody at arm's length because they are those sinful people as opposed to the people that we roll up our sleeves with and we seek to serve even though they're far from perfect. Now let's get a little bit more practical. What does it look like to lay your life down on a daily basis? I don't think it's a godly thing for you to just throw yourself into oncoming traffic for Mark. I love you, Mark. I'm going to throw myself into oncoming traffic. Mark, you don't want that, do you? Mark, right? right. Thank you. All right. I was really nervous there for a second. All right. Mark does not want that either, okay? The point being that there is a practical way that this would look. And I think the first thing is just say, when you look at the example that Jesus sets and that he doesn't just call them servants, he calls them friends, there's this move towards personal relationship. How are you setting to work to actually know other people? Jesus made the disciples his friends. He didn't love them from afar. He spent time with them. So the question is, who are you intentionally getting to know? Who are you intentionally pursuing as a friend? Even if that friend is not like you at all, that's okay. The church is filled with people that are not like you. Who are you trying to get to know? Next, it forgives and endures sin. It forgives and endures sin. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you're looking at that that chapter, which originally, I just want to mention this, I know it's used in weddings. It's actually really for the church. It says love is, you know what the very first thing is? Patient. Why do you think he starts with patience? Because Paul's been around the church. (laughs) These people need patience with one another, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrong. See, the first way that we love other sinners is we're patient with them. We're long-suffering with them. Jason, KJV, long-suffering, all right? We, he, we, we suffer long with one another. We are patient with one another because Jesus was patient with us. But on top of that, we are kind to one another. And I think that word kind can end up being neutered. So let me give you a different word. It prefers other people. It prefers other people. It allows what they want, what they need, what they desire to be foremost to you, not what you want, what you desire, what you need. It doesn't run into a room and does something that hurts somebody's feelings and be like, that's just who I am. It understands that those other people, like they've got desires and needs and I want to help meet those needs. And if that means that I need to hold my tongue more than I'm used to, I need to try harder to to be gentle, it means that that we're going to take that into account. 
And I think it's also kind and it's humble. It's not arrogant. It's not proud. It's not rude. And then finally, I think I just want to say this, that all of this at some level, it means that it's sacrificial. It serves. It gives to those in need. I think one thing I just want to say is that service in the local church is not an identity. It's not an obligation. It's a means of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a means of loving them. Any other motivation is pride. Any other motivation is wrong. But when we love one another, we should want to serve one another. 1 John 3, uh, 3, 17 through 18 says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. I was talking with some brothers this week, and I was just right. We have some people in this church that have legitimate financial and physical needs. If you have capacity, I want to encourage you to want to meet those needs. And then I would say that all of us have things that our brothers and sisters need and that part of the way that we walk in the love of Christ is by sacrificially giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures for their good. Sometimes I feel like we can talk about service as like it's just this grand obligation. You're supposed to serve one another. You know why you're supposed to serve one another? Because that is what love looks like. So that's what Jesus expects of his people, the character of his people, that they would love one another as he loves them. But that's not all he wants us to expect. Now he, expect, he, he moves and explains that Jesus expects that you will be hated like he was hated. Jesus expects that you will be hated like he is hated. It just keeps getting better, huh? So from the love that he has for us and we are to have for one another, Jesus now turns the kind of reception that they can expect from the world or anyone that is not submitted to Christ. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So I want you to follow me here because this may not be totally understandable or may not seem totally logical. Abiding Christians, joyful Christians, loving Christians can expect to be hated. How can that be true? Because the Jesus that abiding is abiding in us, the Jesus that should be evident in our lives, that is proclaimed upon our lips, the world hates. And if they hated him, don't expect that somehow you can avoid that. That somehow you can trick the system through your master. Though your master couldn't avoid it. You, if you were just a really good Christian and do all the right things, are somehow going to avoid 
what he did not. You see, you were chosen out of a world in rebellion who hated and crucified our perfect master. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you are hated, don't take it personally, people of God. They hated me first. And so I think there's a couple things I want to do with this. First, I just want to get rid of this idea that you are going to belong in this world. Now, I don't mean by this that you should not be a great citizen in the city in which you live. Or that you should not be a great neighbor in your neighborhood. Or that you should not be a great co-worker or a great friend with unbelievers. I'm saying you should, because of the virtue of Jesus being in you, should be great in all of those realms. But you need to recognize at the same time that if the Jesus who called you out of the world to himself is different from the world, then you are not of the world and so you cannot accept, expect to be accepted and loved and at home in the world. Makes me think of just a few articles recently I read where six reasons our culture is turning from the church. Y'all, I could write an article that's like 36 reasons the culture is turning from the church. And by that I mean like places where we're imperfect. But here's the thing that they don't often come to recognize in these articles is that if you were living perfectly for Christ, you were a perfect representation of Jesus the world would still hate you. Because the only thing that they would see is the Jesus that they have ultimately rebelled against. Because next, Jesus says this. Verse 21, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. There was no reason they should hate Jesus. They hated Jesus because they hated the father. Why does Jesus expect the world will hate his fathers? Ultimately, because they neither know nor love the father. And I think this is especially significant because remember who he's talking to. He's talking to unbelieving Jews. He was talking to religious people. He was talking to synagogue attending people. He was talking to people that had given a good chunk of their lives to know the Torah. And yet he says to them very clearly, you hate God. You don't either know my father and you don't hate him because you have rejected me. And remember, Jesus, throughout the gospel of John, has gone to great pains to make this point clear. If you know and love me, you know and love the father because I am his word. I am an exact imprint of his nature. I am God in the flesh. And so if you don't like me in the flesh, you don't like the God that you can't see. And I think this is a helpful corrective because I think sometimes Christians can have a naive view of human nature as in our natural state, we are not morally, we are not morally neutral to God. Romans 8, 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
So the hostility that followers of Christ experience is ultimately rooted in a fundamental hostility to God and his law, to his moral authority and requirements. And why do we as his followers experience that animosity on his behalf? Because we have the Holy Spirit who delights to bear witness to Christ. So verse 26 and 27 says this, But when the Helper comes, notice capital H, Helper, Holy Spirit, When the Helper comes, who I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, Jesus is going to send a Helper, the Holy Spirit, and His purpose, His ministry, His desire is to bear witness about the glory of the Son. And I think this is helpful because sometimes we get confused about what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And we have churches that talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, but not much about Jesus. And the reality is that a church that is Spirit-filled will make much of the Son. Because that is the ministry that the Spirit has. He wants to glorify and bear witness about the glory of the Son. He's been sent for that exact purpose. That's why in Acts 1, Jesus says, Don't you leave Jerusalem until I send my Spirit. You've got this mission of taking the, bearing witness to the ends of the earth. But you don't take one step until my Spirit comes and empowers you for this mission. The Spirit is given so that the people of God would faithfully bear witness to the glory of Christ and who he is. And I want to make maybe one side point here. It just was hitting me this morning. Some of you may be going, no one hates me. I mean, (laughs) somehow I'm the exception of the rule. I I want to make two kind of clarifying statements. One, they didn't hate Jesus at first either. Okay? It took time. It took exposure. And where he really got us in trouble was when he really started making it very clear that he was the exclusive son of God, the only way to the Father. And so sometimes I think part of the reason that Christians aren't hated Because Christians aren't bearing witness to the Son. When we bear witness to the Son, there will be a cost. If we keep it quiet and we're just good moral Christian people who don't tell anybody why we're so moral, we don't tell anybody, I think you're going to get along all right. But when the Spirit of God comes in us, He yearns for the Son of God to be made glorious. And so we want to bear witness to what He has done and who He is. And there's going to be a cost for that. Now, why did Jesus tell him all this? Is it because Jesus wants to depress Christians? Is it his goal for you that you would leave here thoroughly discouraged? No. He just wants you to be ready. As he says in verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all these things. To keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when, whenever, when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. 
In other words, Jesus wants us to expect this reaction, not because every day of our life is going to look like like people throwing bricks at us and hating us, because that's unrealistic, okay? I'm just going, but he's just saying that if you are never ostracized, if you are never, if no one, there's no ever cost in your Christianity, and no one ever dislikes you, has any problem with you, not because they're justified, because you're, you know, not being a nice person, but because... You're loving Jesus and proclaiming Jesus and worshiping Jesus. He's just saying that should not that we should expect those things to happen and that over the course of our lifetime it will happen if we are faithfully doing that for him. If we are faithfully walking in abiding in him and proclaiming and bearing witness to him. In other words, Jesus wants us to expect this reaction so we aren't caught off guard. And this is the way that he lovingly prepares us for it. I like the way 1 Peter 4.1 says it. 1 Peter 4.1, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, prepare yourself for it before it happens, not knowing when it'll happen, so that when that comes, you are ready and you don't fall away. Now, what's happening to you is not strange. It's not foreign. You may not have done anything wrong. This is just part of what it means to follow Christ in a fallen world. Be ready. Prepare your mind that way. So I just want to make a few more kind of just applications and then we'll close. First, I just want to talk to our young adults, children, young adults, people that are in Christian homes right now. Everybody in your circle wants you to follow Jesus. There will be a cost one day when no one around you will want you to follow. The question that you need to ask yourselves, is Jesus worth it? Because Jesus comes even though he offers the world and he is the greatest treasure. He comes at a cost. And if you are only willing to serve Jesus around a bunch of people who want you to love Jesus, that is not what following Jesus will look like and you will not continue to follow him once you enter into the world. And I also want to speak, if there's anybody here who is still on the outside of Christianity, you used to be a Christian, you thought about being a Christian, you've been religious your whole life. Following Jesus is an all-encompassing call. It'll demand your life. But he gives all his grace, all his mercy, all his blessings to any who will merely repent and believe. You can be right with the Son of God by merely acknowledging that you are a sinner in need and turning to him in faith. You don't bring anything to the table as we just sang, empty in my hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross that I cling. You will give nothing, you will earn nothing, you gain nothing, or you bring nothing to Jesus. But if you come sincerely seeking, desiring him to save you, he will do it. And then he will give you all that you need to be able to persevere with him, regardless of what the cost is. You don't 
you're not expected to have what it takes. He is going to give you what it takes. And he makes himself available freely to any who would repent and believe. And my final word, just of warning, just to more experienced Christians who've been walking with the world, please do not neglect the consistent influence and manipulative power of the world that hated Christ. James 4, 4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we run after the approval of the world, it's like we've got somebody that hates our spouse. Like if I knew somebody that hated Emily and I was like trying to be all buddy-buddy with them and like trying to get in, like getting their approval, it would be ultimately like I was betraying her. And I think sometimes the way we treat the world is very similar. Though Christ has died for us, he has loved us, he has cleansed us, he is not expecting perfection, but he is drawing us to himself. His people are to seek to love him by loving one another and clinging to Christ, not by trying to befriend the world. And I think just God, no matter how long we've been walking the Christian life, we will always feel that pull to be accepted, to be approved, to be liked by a world that rejected Jesus. And we need to be on guard against that. Because as James 4, 4 says, I missed the first little phrase. He says, you adulterous people. We don't want to be unfaithful to a Jesus that loved us the way he has loved us. And so I know it wasn't easy for my children to hear before we embarked on our last trip down to see Mo and Pop that Mo and Pop were going to be there when we got there. They were going to get to see him eventually, but not at first. And then ultimately it was going to require something of them as they were just kind of grinning and bearing it as their mom went to the hospital and there were some things that they just had to endure But ultimately what it did is it served to prepare them well for what was to come. And I think we have to hear these words as Jesus' loving exhortation and preparation for you, dear people of God. He loves you. And he wants you to be able to persevere over the long haul, to cling to him and continue to walk in faithfulness. And so with our expectations appropriately set, we can only do one thing. We must cling to Christ and abide in Christ because our love and our perseverance are a product of his power at work in you. Want to see more love for one another? Abide in Christ. Want to have strength to persevere amidst the hatred of the world? Abide in Christ. 